Well, hello. Welcome to the first MOH podcast. I'm Jim Patton, and I'm your host today. We're going to be doing a lot of different things here in the MOH podcast, including interviews, playing music, teaching, talking about topics that interest us, and whatever we decide to do. Uh, Many of you know we have a website, moh.org, where you can find lots of free stuff for those who are interested in discipleship. This is the podcast that we're going to do that's going to be kind of an extension of that. Now, we have hundreds of hours of audio from our friend Winky Prattney, and we plan to do our best to make as much of this available to you as is possible. So today, we're going to be sharing one of Winky's teachings that we acquired from the Los Angeles YWAM base. We received 142 cassettes from the base. Uh, This was uh, stuff that was recorded on cassette back in the 1970s, and YWAM had this particular one labeled as WP100, so it appears to be the 100th message he gave there at that base. Today's message is entitled, You Shall Not Take the Name of the Lord Your God in Vain. And uh, the scripture reference for this is uh, in Exodus, it's uh, chapter 20, verse 7, where it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that has taken his name in vain. So with that, we're ready to go, and here's Winky. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Now this commandment we have historically taken to mean swearing. You should not swear. You shouldn't use Christ's name in vain. And we in the Western world have sneakily said, well, it's a good thing that now I'm saved and I don't break this anymore. I don't swear anymore. I don't say what secular people do. Now, if you have any kind of uh, truck with secular people, you find that those who are a little short on vocabulary, uh, about every third or fourth word is some kind of violation of commandments against profanity and uh, sometimes when you get in the Christian world you you forget just how profane secular people are and it kind of shocks you and you go oh I'm not but uh, this is just normal everyday life out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and when a person's heart is filthy his mouth will be filthy in various ways people have tried to correct this. One guy was swearing away and I had a friend, he said, do you eat with that mouth? <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, now, I think we should have uh, a reverence for the name of, of God and especially for the name of Christ. The name of God you know, is a general term and uh, has been applied to other gods other than the Bible God. But for the Christian, the light or irreverent use of any name for God is not a good thing at all. Um, We have to even watch little things that, like uh, gosh, which is just a nice euphemous way of saying God, or gee, which is a euphemous way of saying Jesus, and certain other things. Just little things like that. We should be careful even on small things like that. But um, 
When we live in a society where people swear all the time, uh, there are probably different ways to deal with that. Now, I, I personally have hard times when people start using the name of Christ right next door to me. I don't like it. I will not stand it. And I've asked God to help me various ways of dealing with this. And constantly when I'm working with secular people and I find them continually doing this, I feel a divine urgency to <laughs> admonish them somewhat. Uh, I've never forgotten coming out of a meeting one time. We had we'd attended a incredible convention. It was a four-day convention. The thing was advertised by people sending out the book of Nehemiah and uh, the rebuilding of the of the walls and city of God. And then at the bottom it said, if you believe this vision is of the Spirit of God, please apply such and such a place. This is the cost and nothing. I mean, there was no speakers. There was nothing, nothing. Just the rebuilding of the wall and about 300 people came from all over the country, church leaders and everything to this convention. And they prayed day by day as to who should speak there among those who came. It was a heavy, heavy convention. Just presence of God was super strong. So we came out of this thing just feeling like the Lord was going to come any moment because nothing else could be as good as this. And uh, we're driving home. It was a long, long drive, about an eight or ten hour drive back. So about two o'clock in the morning, came over the hill, and I'm a night person. I, I love eating at night. I prowl around at about two and raid refrigerators and stuff. And don't talk to me at six in the morning, but <laughs> two, I'm fine. So it's about two o'clock in the morning, which is hungry time for night owls, and we came over the top of this hill, and there, like an oasis in the desert, was a hamburger stand. Very... <laughs> Just one little lonely hamburger stand right in the middle of nowhere. It looked like an illusion for a while. <laughs> but I was about three miles away when I saw this thing. <laughs> and I could smell the hamburgers. I really could. So we were saying glory to God. And we just drove right into this thing. And there was about, oh, 15, 16 people standing around. And it was just a little trailer, sort of a home-built thing. And people were couple of college kids were cooking hamburgers in there and quite a lot of people around there for two o'clock in the night so I got out of there man I headed up to this thing I said glory to God I'm gonna eat came right up to that thing I just arrived at the counter and the guy burned his finger on the fat and he said hey, you got right he said, and it just went like a, somebody got a big old knife and went right under my heart and turned it around three or four times and I physically turned away from the counter going I turned around and he was back there and I said to the Lord if he says that again I'm going to get him <laughs> and I turned back to the counter and he burned his finger again and he said and I thought brother you really did I looked him in the eye and I said excuse me do you know him and he said, what? I said, Jesus Christ, just heard you mention his name. He happens to be a friend of mine. His eyes got big. So, matter of fact, I was just talking to him about you.
And I have never seen a guy change so many colors in so many seconds. I think he must have been a church kid, you know, thinking, well, nobody, no Christians would ever get me out here. <laughs> and he went through every color of the rainbow, green, yellow, blue, white, you know, just really funny. And he started stuttering and stammering and said, ah, <laughs> sometimes I think I do and sometimes I'm not sure and blah, 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 see. And I just started preaching right across the counter. Forget hamburgers. Well, you know, he, uh, he, he wasn't cooking. He just stopped and listened. And, and the hamburger stand closed down. And at the end of this thing, I'm not quite sure how it happened. I forgot about everything. I was talking to this guy. And, and the stand closed down. And everybody was standing around and there wasn't any hamburgers on, so the Lord might as well listen to the sermon. And uh, we had two or three people get saved that night from that thing. I never did get to eat, but uh, <laughs> there are ways of, of dealing with that. I was playing tennis with a guy once. He was unsaved as the day is long. And... Uh, Every time he missed a shot, he'd say, Jesus, I missed that. And I said to him, finally, I said, look, it's no good you pray. You're not saved. I'm saved. I know Jesus. Let me talk to him. I'll get some results. <laughs> and uh, remember another time, a guy was shooting up a tract. He was trying to take a picture of it, and he, he blew it twice. It came out sideways and out of focus. And, really get mad. He said, God damn this thing. And I looked at him and I said, you really think God is going to damn your business? I think God cares about it. <laughs> I think he's going to do that. <laughs> you know, it just, there are ways that, that God can give you. This. But you have to, what you have to do is to represent God for the time. It's not, I'm personally offended by the words you're using. It's, you know how much that uh, hurts God to talk about him like that bring God right into the middle of the thing using his name we might as well get the reality behind it and uh, this of course I think is the surface level of what we understand by this word you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain but actually this commandment is a lot solider than just swearing we could say this and again, Elton Trueblood says this, the kind of tolerance which obscures the necessity of choice between competing faiths is an evil thing. But there's another mood which is equally dangerous to our society. This is the mood of millions which claim adherence to faith in the living God but would be ashamed to be excited about it. That would be bad form. In the words of the musical on Sunday, not the proper thing to do. The faith is harmed far more by such timid upholders than it is by open and violent enemies. The worst blasphemy is not profanity, but lip service. The worst blasphemy is not profanity, but lip service. And what we are dealing with in this second commandment is the recovery of urgency as a central note in the Christian faith. There is not in this entire set of Ten Commandments any explicit condemnation of intellectual atheism. God never says, Thou shalt not, not believe in me. It's not there. 
These commandments are all addressed to people who believed in God. And we have the third commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So what we have here is a condemnation. The first one, right, is a condemnation not of those who fail to believe in God, but those who put their priorities wrongly. The second commandment is not against atheism, but against the fashionable tendencies to suppose that one way is as good as another. The third commandment, this one we're dealing with this morning, does not condemn those who fail to believe it. It condemns those who believe it and do nothing whatsoever about it. That is what it means to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, there's a couple of reasons probably why this atheism in Scripture is not made a big thing of. You know, the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God, but if you look up, uh, you know, 400 Bible verses on why you shouldn't be an atheist, you won't find a lot of them there. And the re there are a couple of reasons for this. First case, it is a very rare thing, atheism. It was even more rare in ancient times. As a matter of fact, atheism began to be fashionable in the last few centuries. Vast majority of people in ancient times, if you read all the literature of ancient times, were not atheists. Their question wasn't, is there a God, or is there God? But fundamentally, this question, what kind of God is there? And uh, how should I serve him? There were atheists of very rare breeds. It's taken modern technological man believing that, you know, physics and chemistry and electronics are the measure of the whole universe to come up with atheism. It's, it started getting popular in French rationalism, and then Darwin's time got a new impetus. But... But atheism per se is not really that historically popular thing. The second reason is it is a dull and unexciting position to hold. Real atheism is a very dull thing. It's also a very sad thing. To be an atheist doesn't necessarily mean that you'd be better than a person who's, you know, just sort of a, a, a believer of something. It just makes you sad. And real atheism, totally committed atheism, is a very, very sad and lonely and empty sort of life. Because you've got to come to the firm conviction that there is nothing in the universe at all except time and chance and matter. That all you are is a meaningless lump of protoplasm, that somehow the end product of fantastic series of accidents and then here you are with no purpose, no dignity, no meaning, no value. It's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. Incinerated, gas, dust, ashes, and that's it. Nothing more. No future. At the very least, to be an atheist is a sad thing. You have to, if you've got courage at all, it's a courage in spite of facts. Not a courage because of. So, historically, atheism is no real big threat. I do not believe... The, the final days are going to see a great resurgence of atheism. The Bible is very clear. The problem in the last days is not going to be people not believing in God, but people believing in a false God and giving themselves wholly over to that with religious fervor and devotion. Now, what our danger then is not atheism which is unpopular Madeline Murray O'Hare is still not a popular person no matter what she does she won't be popular she may be very um, 
meteorized and advertised, but it's really hard to be a popular atheist, especially in the Western culture. Because we, we, you know, in God we trust and we put in the flag one nation under God and we do all of these things. So it's not fun to be an atheist. But the worst danger is not atheism, which is unpopular, but mild religion, which is very popular. Mild religion, you know? Now, let me explain this. Uh, I have a little illustration. When I first had to come over to the U.S., this has been waived at the moment. We had to take an uh, inoculation. It's called a smallpox vaccination. And um, I never, I would, I'm paranoid of needles. You show me a needle, I faint. Just, I don't like those, especially ones that look like bicycle pumps. <laughs> you know? And... Uh, so I went through all kinds of drastic changes when I knew I had to go and get a vaccination. It was almost enough to stop me from obeying God, to have to get a vaccination to go overseas. I didn't mind going overseas, and I was wondering if the Lord could get me over there without me having to get this thing. But I finally went, and you know, I'm all paranoid, see, and the doctor says, roll up your left arm, you know, my left arm. <laughs> so I rolled my left arm up and... and uh, then he gets a piece of glass or something. I don't know what he got. It looked like a piece of glass. And he cut my arm. And I thought, man, he's not only going to stick me, he's going to mutilate me first. Just make sure there's any blood there. I look so pale, perhaps, you see. And then he got a little, a little uh, sort of a capsule, encapsulated little bunch of, I don't know what it was, some little yellow junk. And then he rubbed it in there thought, boy, this doesn't, you know. And then he put a band-aid on it. And I thought, he, he, this is maybe to get him a good aim. He draws a circle on the band-aid and <laughs> sticks his thing on. And he said, okay, that's it. And I said, that's it. I said, that didn't hurt. He said, not now. <laughs> and uh, I said, is there any reason why you give it in the left arm? He said, yeah, most people are right-handed and they need to use their left their right arm, you see. said, oh, great, I'm left-handed. I wish you had told me that earlier. Well, I left, and, and later on in the afternoon, I started feeling a bit funny, you know. And, uh, and then, boy, a day later, this football began to grow right under my arm, this huge lump under my arm. And I said, oh, baby, what is this thing, see? And uh, I had symptoms like cold, you know, and all this stuff. And then I had a driving job, you know, without power steering. You can imagine. So, for about three or four days, this lump was there. And this thing all swelled up and became a real scar and, and everything. And then it, then it subsided. Well, I thought, brother, this is really bad news. It's smallpox. This is a vaccination. What is the real thing must be like if you get this thing all over you, see? And then I found out a wild thing. When they vaccinate you against smallpox, they don't give you smallpox. They give you cowpox, which is a very similar disease. And apparently your body, its immune reactions, don't, it can't tell the difference between cowpox and smallpox, so they manufacture all these immunes on the basis of this cowpox, this mild form of cowpox, which you get. And those immunes also protect you against smallpox. So your body doesn't know the difference between small and cow. <laughs> And I think that is what has happened in Western civilization. 
we have been inoculated with a mild, similar-sounding form of religiousness which has been called Christianity. And as a result, we cannot catch the real thing. And it is precisely that inoculation which this commandment speaks against. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not live a kind of life that demonstrates practically to the world that Christianity is an easy, nice uh, compromise between various other things. In other words, the sin lies not in rejecting God's name, but in taking his name practically without a sense of conviction and urgency in your life. The one ancient commandment which is most completely pertinent to our contemporary predicament is this third commandment. Of all the commandments, it hits us the hardest. It hits us the hardest because it reveals our life at the weakest point and shows us we cannot be saved except by a return to urgency and truthfulness. Now, if this, if this commandment deals with the the using of words about God without a fundamental reality behind it. And this is the most broken commandment in the United States of America. You know how many million evangelicals are supposed to be in this country? Nine million people claim to have a born-again experience. Now, born-again has become a word like Republican today. See, it's, media used all the time. He's a good born-again man. It means nothing. It means absolutely zero. It's an empty can that's been tipped out and put new words inside. Born again means a gung-ho sort of person. That's all it means now. Now, we know what it means. Can we read the Bible? Born again means somebody's had a new birth. He's died to his old life. He's been resurrected into new consciousness, a new surrender to God, a whole change of heart has taken place. He loves Jesus Christ supremely. He said goodbye to his old self-centeredness. In God, the Bible, Christ has become the most important central reality in his life. That's what it means to be born again. Now I guarantee you nine million people in this country do not have that experience. You know, of course this probably includes all the reincarnation people. Yes, I've been born again many times. You know, that probably includes them and a number of others who tripped and fell sometimes and hit their heads and said, I was born again, you know. But what I'm talking about is a mass of people who claim not only to be Christians, but evangelical Christians who violate this third commandment in every single day and in so doing turn hundreds of thousands of people away from the living God. And the tragedy is it creates a spiritual vacuum that any old nut can come in and rip up. Now there are four different kinds of of things that can roll today. We can have kind of a... Uh, we can have another kind of faith which is more like, like a pagan religion which is kind of totally opposed to Christianity. Sometimes it'll be tied in with uh, government. It'll be like a state religion like in uh, World War II. You know that Hitler consulted magicians and astrologers in doing what he was doing. He had demonic guidance. He really felt it was a religious crusade that he was on, that he had been fated to rule the world. 
that uh, he had voices showing him and telling him that this was his destiny. This was not just a political thing, it was a religious thing. The pogrom against the Jews, which included also the Christians, we talk about how many Jews died, There's also over a million Christians died in those concentration camps. Tremendous number. Often this thing is tied in with the states, made a, it becomes a political thing. Now, um, this will flood into that vacuum if, uh, if the world is starved from a real, genuine, gripping, challenging, central reality in Jesus Christ. This thing may take the place. Today, we have some parallels of it. Probably the uh, Unification Church would be a modern, smaller version of this thing. The Moonies. See, a, a new, it's a pagan faith. It bears resemblance to Christianity in that it quotes various Christian things, but it's usually tied in with state and with race. In this case, we've got a Messiah according to the Moonies and according to some, some, young, goon, uh, some young moon. Uh, he is obviously the Messiah because the Messiah has to come from the East and various tricky little sociological manipulations and he must be from Korea and there's only one and that's him. So he won't say that, but nevertheless, that's what he believes. And that will give a, uh, you know, there's, an, uh, there's a whole fresh strength that comes out of a belief like this, especially when nobody believes in anything, see? Somebody comes and says, I'm the Messiah, we are fated to rule the world, God is behind us, <laughs> let's go get him. Then all kinds of people plug into this. People are lonely, people are empty, people have got nothing, people are purposelessness, there's no family, there's no closeness, there's nothing. No central purposes, no great ideals falls lock, stock, and barrel into this thing. And they'll work their tails off for this. They'll die for it. Now, sometimes that religion is put into a huge political machine that can trigger world wars, as it happened in Hitler's time. But the other uh, thing similar to this would be uh, one that isn't really a faith. It's uh, intellectual rejection of Christianity. So it's like an intellectual atheism, which would be like uh, in the Marxist countries, in the Maoist countries. In uh, communist, the communist bloc, atheism intellectually becomes a base and what they do, though, is they steal Christian principles and steal Christian uh, ideas. Uh, I, Marxism has been called a Christian heresy because uh, its apparent concern is for the common ordinary man. And yet, from a real basis of atheism, you should have no concern for anybody. Practically, that's the way it comes out. But the whole original force of communism when it took over the first third of the world well, these young people went out with dreams in their, you know, in their eyes and stars, and they said, man, we have a way in which we can eliminate selfishness from society. We can stop people from being selfish. We can clean up the world. And uh, that's why communism has always, at least officially, kept a high morality. In Vietnam, when the, when the uh, communists took over in Vietnam, the first thing they did was to pull out all the prostitution dens. 
They've learned by bitter and hard experience that any country that has loose sexual morals is going to be disintegrated. Now, with all the Christian democracy that we had in there, we never got rid of that. As a matter of fact, we encouraged it. Horrible, horrible situation. Uh, American army bases, where they kept professional prostitutes for the men because they couldn't be back with their wives, so they actually housed prostitutes. And then, talk about degradation, each girl was given a number. And over the loudspeaker every morning, they would read the numbers of girls that had been discovered to have venereal disease, so there would be no cohabitation with these girls this day. God we trust. Lip service. And the Marxists come in, not claiming any Christian commitment, but having learned by experience that if the loose sexual morals are allowed to rule in a culture like they did in early Russia, within five years the whole country started to collapse, so they tightened, and now it's extremely hard to get married, let alone get divorced in communist China. You know, you're not allowed to get married till you're about 30-something. And then it's exceedingly hard to get a divorce because the, the strong tightness and solidarity of, of, of this central unit. Um, they believe in morals. Cleaned out all the prostitutes and gave them a very simple alternative. You either stop being a prostitute and learn a trade or we shoot you. Which, you know, has effect very quickly. Now, uh, that thing stole then a lot of the Christian principles without its, its base. Said we should have all things in common, you know, which the early church did because they loved each other. The only difference is the basic motivation is fear. And the Bible motivation of that having all things in common was love. You have to have something to keep the people together and make them do what you want them to do. And Karl Marx's early thing, he thought just by teaching people this that they would change, and they didn't. So along came Vladimir Ulanov, whose name we remember better today as Lenin, and said, well, people will not learn this automatically. You make them learn it. And he put violence in behind this thing and became a very effective weapon. You learn it or you die. So everybody learned it very quickly. We got a great chunk of the world today under rulership by this philosophy, and that forms a second kind. third kind is the one we pick. A nice, tolerant, easy, middle-of-the-road thing that believes in God. We believe in God. We really do. Of course we believe in God. We're a Christian country. All right? That's the fourth alternative. But this is a, uh, this is a lip service. And what is funny is we are shocked at a person who denies God and we are shocked at somebody who obeys him. Either one shocks us. What? He doesn't believe in God? What? He does believe in God? We're shocked by both. Crazy. You practice seriously the New Testament in this country and you will see how shocking real Christianity is. And we have here a scripture in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 11 that it behoves us to look at. Matthew chapter 11.
verse, or Jesus speaking, verse 7, and as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went you out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Truly I say to you, among them that are born of woman, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. That's a strange word to use, especially from Christ. Now, this word violence we want to look at today because uh, the Bible word violence is not quite the same as the word we use for violence. A question was given to me uh, a day ago that said this, in righteous anger, what is the extreme in violence and even killing are either acceptable to do in any circumstance? The question of violence and force in the Christian faith. I want to look at this briefly. And to do this, I want you to go back further in the book of Matthew to Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to read a chunk from the Sermon on the Mount first from verse 17 well you can read the whole thing but verse 17 will start think not I am come to destroy the law or the prophets I'm not come to destroy but to fulfill for truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, You fool, you stupid, em empty-headed idiot, shall be in danger of hellfire. And then verse uh, 38, you've heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you that you resist not evil, but, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asks thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. You have heard that it has been said, You shall love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. 
for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brothers only, what more do you than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, this morning we want to look at a relationship, again, a form and freedom relationship. Remember we had these two bases? First one was the fact that God was uncreated. What was the second one? He was a creator. And I said these two form the basis of all form and freedom in the universe. Ultimate form can be traced to the fact that God is an uncreated being and that his own being is the basis of all stability in the universe. And then, oh, I'll just leave that like that and hope it doesn't tear off. Um, freedom's base is the fact that God is a creator. We want to look this morning at how God rules people and we're going to look then at the question of uh, urgency in society, being urgent without getting violent in a non-Christian way. Now, has it embarrassed you sometimes to see Christians yelling and screaming uh, in the name of urgency? Do you know what I'm saying? Here you're standing, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but um, I've seen it a lot of times, far too many times. I'm in a university, I'm preaching to a bunch of unsafe people, right? In the middle of this university, a kid stands up, and this he's a radical, right? And he's lost as Hugh Hefner, and he's screaming and yelling, and he's saying all these nasty things, right? And he's saying all this to me. And then this other defender of the faith, champion of the just, wisest of the wise, leaps up in the front and starts yelling and screaming back at him. Guy in the front is Christian. Ah, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. Listening, right? Now, I don't know who I'm going to preach at. Forget the radical, let's get the Christian saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's, there's violence that comes through. Now, where is that coming from? And they would probably quote this verse, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, the violent take it by force, to justify them punching the radical in the mouth. But Jesus says, if you hate in your heart, you're a murderer. He goes much stronger than just killing or murdering. He says, if you hold hatred in your heart, you're just as bad. We are looking then, not at two oppositions, we are looking at a more profound basis of control. And to understand that, We've got to see the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments in terms of control. Now, there are two ways you can control people. One is physically force them to do something. Okay? That depends on how strong you are and how weak the other person is. If you weigh 6,000 pounds and you're 80 foot tall, you could make a 80 pound girl do anything. We'll do it, see, by physical force. But if you're going to rule people morally, then there are two distinct ways in which moral rule can take place. The first way is what we call legal control.
legal control operates when a society is selfish. It is the only moral form of control you can use with a selfish society. This is the basis of all of the first five books of the Bible. God spoke to a society that fundamentally lived to please himself. In order to teach them there was a difference between right and wrong, between good and evil, God gave them five books which are called today we call them the Pentateuch, and that comprises Jewish history and tradition and theology, the law of God. If you said to a Jew, what is the law of God? He would give you the five books, Genesis, Exodus, you know, Numbers, Leviticus, those first five. All right? Legal control is the rule of punishment and reward. You punish the guilty, you reward the virtuous. That's legal control. And it has a good and a worthwhile control as long as people are still basically self-centered. After all, if you think like this, you see, what is best for me? Then being punished is not best for you and being rewarded is. Therefore, control can be placed on a society by making the punishment strong enough so that they don't do it, in case that something bad happens to them, or making alternately the reward strong enough so that if they do do it, then, then uh, it'll be best for them. You understand? As long as people live to please themselves, legal control is the only basic control that can be used. And this fundamentally is the basis on which the Ten Commandments were expressed. They are a moral law, an expression of this, spoken into society and put into words, and hedged up with punishment and reward. Can you give me an example of reward written into the Ten Commandments? There's only one command that has a reward in it. Yes. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, that you may have a long life and a happy one. See? That's a reward built right in. And God says it to kids because he knows how hard it is for kids to obey their parents. So he puts that in there especially important for you to see that as to children because children in the early years cannot make real gospel type decisions they always make legal ones little kids do weird things eskimo eats seals i like seals so if eskimo kills seals i would eat eskimo fix him killing all those nice seals Little kids have to learn like this. That's why if they knock their milk over, see, mother says, now don't you knock your milk over again or I'll smack you. This is not gospel control. This is legal control. Now comes punishment. Smack. Ah! See? This says to this child, you're not allowed to throw milk around. It brings great pain to your hand. <laughs> On the other hand, now if you're a good girl, and you work hard, mommy will buy you a motorbike. 
And uh, this, is, this is a necessary kind of thing. Remember, you work hard and you finally got, uh, there were some basic things which, which you had to do, but if you, went, if you did more than that, in the good home, there was always reward for those who put out, right? Uh, that's legal control. Now, let's put this in other ways. Another way of saying this would be threat and bribe. Another way of looking at this form of control would be, instead of, uh, we'd call it fear and greed. In the old days, they used to call it hope and fear. Hope for the reward, fear of punishment. That's legal control. As long as you live to please yourself, as long as self is the center of your life, Legal control is the only moral control that can be used in your life. Now, people who are crazy today are trying to throw out any form of legal control. There's a tremendous erosion in the courts all over the country. And they're essentially saying, look, it's awful to have things like punishments. See? So let's just do away with it. So what you've got is no consequence. Do you realize there's a generation of kids who are growing up who do not believe in consequences anymore? They cannot connect what they do with the results of what they do, which is an awful situation. You should learn in a home that if you put your hand on a stove, you'll burn it. But there are a generation of kids who are growing up thinking that morally you can put your hand on a stove and there will be no burn. My wife talked to a young lady. She's about 12, 13, 14. She said, well, if I, if I sleep with a guy today, that isn't going to affect tomorrow. In other words, that's just today. That's got nothing to do with tomorrow. No sense of this and then consequence. No sense of that. It's gone. We have a whole generation of kids who are grown up very cool, but with no sense of purpose, no sense of consequence, no sense if I do this, the following thing will happen. In other words, they live completely for now, and there is no ongoing result. And they can't connect the problems they have with what they've done. They don't even see it anymore. And that is a scary, scary thing. It has happened that a, a tremendous loss of responsibility has taken place. People no longer believe they are responsible. Now, we need to hear then the words, a superintelligent statement by a man who is not a Christian. He's a believer in God, but he's not a Christian. And uh, if I can find it, it should be here. Wild thing is, Christians should have said this. He said it. His name is Dr. Carl Meninger, known as the father of American psychiatry. He's what Sigmund Freud was for Europe, Carl Meninger was for America. Carl Meninger put a book out a couple of years back, and it was called Whatever Became of Sin. Just a, and this book became a bestseller. And this is what Carl Meninger said. In all the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, I miss any mention of the word sin, a word that used to be a veritable watchword of prophets. It was a word once in everybody's mind, but is now rarely, if ever, heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in all our troubles? Sin with an I in the middle? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty, perhaps, of a sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for. It's pretty heavy words for a secular guy. 
Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know. Tears are being sown in the wheat field at night. You know, there's more scripture than some Christians. But is no one responsible, no one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression we all acknowledge and even vague guilt feelings. But has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? The very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was a strong word, an ominous word, and a serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. Its disappearance involves a shift in the allocation of responsibility for evil. And then he says, Webster says, Sin is a transgression of the law of God, disobedience of the divine will, moral failure. Sin is failure to realize in conduct and character the moral ideal at least as fully as possible under existing circumstances. Failure to do as one ought towards one fellow man. The wrongfulness of a sinful act lies not merely in its nonconformity, its departure from the accepted appropriate way of behavior. That's what we think sin today. He's sinning meaning he is not fitting in with what is appropriate and acceptable. But an implicitly aggressive quality a ruthlessness, a hurting, a breaking away from God or from the rest of humanity, an alienation or an act of rebellion. Standing on one's head is non-conforming, and it is neither aesthetic nor congenial behavior nor expressive of a moral ideal, but it is not likely to be considered sinful. Sin has a willful, defiant, or disloyal quality. Someone is defied or offended or hurt. The willful disregard or sacrifice of the welfare of others for the welfare or sacrifice of the self is an essential quality of the concept sin. And I say this again. The willful disregard or sacrifice of the welfare of others for the welfare or the, sat the sat sacrifice of the self is an essential quality of the concept sin. And then... He comes right back to B.F. Skinner. The contemporary, remember Frankenstein Skinner, right? No guilt. The contemporary hubhub over Professor Skinner's contention, there is no personal decision involved in behavior, and hence no guilt, recalls the ancient contest over free will. Skinner's position essentially restates Augustine's. St. Augustine resolved the paradox of inevitability has to happen in responsibility at the expense of the latter, and he glorified grace by belittling free will. And we'll look at Augustine in a little while. We need to say this. Sin is the only hopeful view. The present world, miasma and depression, are partly the result of our self-induced conviction that since sin has ceased to be, only the neurotics need to be treated and the criminals punished. As it is, vague amorphous evil appears all about us. And when this or that awful thing is happening, this terrible thing goes on, that wretched circumstances develop, and yet withal, when no one is responsible, nobody is guilty, no moral questions are asked, when there is, in short, nothing to do, we sink into despairing helplessness. Therefore, I say the consequence of my proposal would not be more depression, but less. This is what he's saying. We need to come back into the concept of personal responsibility for things that are wrong. And he's saying, if we do it, we would not have more depression, we would have less. If the concept of personal responsibility and answerability would return to common acceptance, hope would return to the world with it. In other words, if things are going wrong, but it's nobody's fault, 
nobody can take responsibility for it, it's just the way things are, then what can you do? You can't do anything. You just give up and say, forget it. And I think Christians are falling into this trap. The world's getting worse. There's nothing you can do about it. Hallelujah, let's wait for the rapture. Leave all this for the Antichrist. That is not a biblical picture. It cuts the urgency out of the Christian message. Do you see that? It gives a hopelessness, a helplessness, a just giving up attitude. And that's taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. Now in society, people are making determinate attempts to eliminate moral responsibility. It is stupid, it is insane, and yet they're doing it. What you need to see is this. Legal control is necessary for a secular society. It is the basis of all moral control when you have self-centered people. The people who wrote the Constitution of the United States understood fully what it meant to work with a group of people who had selfishness in their lives. And the checks and balances system was arranged so that nobody could ever rule and overthrow the other thing. It's all designed around that central concept. In other words, as long as people are selfish and live to please themselves, there has to be some form of moral, legal control. Okay? Now, when you think carefully about this society, you will find that everything in the world, even on television, is sold by this. Fear, threat or bribe, punishment or reward, fear or greed, sells everything you see on television. Aren't you glad you used dial? Don't you wish everybody else did? Now that's not an upfront, you buy this can of dial. It just says, you want to be rejected, left out because you smell, then don't buy this product. But however, you do, you will be in. That elite group that spray dial. You see that? You take five commercials, anytime you see it on television, you analyze which of those two are being used. Sometimes they're very subtle. See? But a vast chunk of stuff is done simply on that basis. That is legal control. It is perfectly valid as long as you live to please yourself. The whole of the Old Testament, moral code, an expression of the ultimate good comes out for Israel on a legal basis. As long as you've got people who live to please themselves, you have to have legal control. Now, I've said that in order to contrast this with a much more powerful form of moral control, which is gospel control. And my statement at this point is this. We need this responsibility to come back. We cannot throw this out. And that is why Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Christianity does not overthrow moral responsibility. It does not overthrow those legal strictures. It simply gives a more powerful form of control than this legal form. And we're going to look at that in just a second. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we see uh, the decay of culture around us. And the people are breaking your laws and breaking your heart. And this uh, tremendous rot that has gone through society. And we pray for restoration of real moral values. We thank you for the Decalogue. We thank you for the Pentateuch. We thank you for these 
Ten Commandments that you gave to an ancient people that preserved them and kept them alive in the middle of a sea of total uncertainty and stupidity. We bless you for the whole record of history where you brought a nation out of total paganism into a representative people which you call by your name. In Jesus' name, help us to hang on to these things in our own hearts, in our own lives. We may be indeed a special people in your eyes and in the sight of those you've called to minister to. Amen. All right, there you have it. Podcast number one from the MOH podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I imagine it wasn't quite what you expected when you heard the title, but that's okay. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Take this to heart. Make it a part of your life. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>